And won't it be wonderful there? A song that reminds us, as so many others do, about, of course, our sojourn here being but temporary and how that we yearn and long for a place far better than this one. It'll be wonderful there, of course, won't it? We are thankful, as mentioned earlier tonight, Gary brought to our attention their appreciation for all who are present, and certainly we're delighted to be able to sing and to pray and to do those things that would please our Heavenly Father. We're going to study a lesson for the next few moments entitled, Wanting to Want To. Maybe that title is somewhat catchy, or at least maybe it gives some indication as to what we're going to discuss together. But I hope that certainly the lessons, the applications, the, the practicalities of it will be very meaningful, that you and I can use them. And let's begin with at least these introductory thoughts. Isn't it interesting how that you and I, with our knowledge of the Word of God, we often, of course, know exactly what's the right thing to do. But it isn't always the case that that's our favorite thing to do. In other words, we know what we should do, but we don't always want to do it as fervently as we know we should. In other words, I don't want to do that as strictly, as strongly, as powerfully as I know that I perhaps ought to. And how can I develop that wanting to want to? Well, tonight, let's look at that text in 2 Corinthians 8 and look at some lessons that can help us to want to want to serve the Lord. And as we do that, let's, of course, close that slide by noting that middle and the bottom slide, the bottom statement as well. How do you and I as Christians develop in us not just some appreciation for doing what's right, but to want to do what's right? Well, indeed, that's a matter that, of course, is a critical factor in the New Testament. And this next slide will set before us the prime example before we launch into that text in 2 Corinthians 8, let's at least spend a moment thinking about Jesus, our beloved Master. Wouldn't it be fair to say He always did the will of God? He never ever sinned. He always did the will of God. But I would call to your attention, some several passages make that statement very plain. In John 6 verse 38, the Lord Himself admitted... I came down to, from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And so it was that He, in every attribute, in all aspects of His life, He did that which was the will of God. But let's go even deeper than that. It's not merely that He did it. He wanted to do it. Now note again the distinction. It's not merely that He did it. That's what He genuinely wanted to do. In John 5, verse number 30, on that occasion in description of that point, it is brought to your attention in mind that this description is given. Speaking of Christ, He delighted to do the will of God. You notice a sense then of desire, eagerness, enthusiasm. He wanted to do it. In John 8, verse 29, the statement is given... I always do those things that please Him. It seems as if Jesus not only, again, did that which was the will of God, but He wanted to do it. You and I could be greatly benefited, couldn't we, in our daily walk of life, if that kind of mentality was ours, that not only do I do that which is pleasing to God, but that's what I always want to do. 
that will help keep the devil even more so at bay. For those reasons, let's close that slide and note these additional examples. What was said of David in Psalm 40 verse 8? As David made the description of himself, he therein said that I always delight in the will of God. Meaning again that he found a sense of urgency and he found a grand sense of desire in him to do the will of God. He wanted to do it. In Psalm 119 verse 35, he said, Make me to follow thy commandments for therein do I delight. There's that word delight again. He found an element of happiness, an element, you see, of intense satisfaction in doing the will of God. He delighted in it. Furthermore, in Psalm 119, verse 47, and near the end of the chapter, verse 174, the delight that David felt for the Word of God was keen. May I submit that that could be at least a matter that will recur later in our lesson because it will be a vital part when we come to 2 Corinthians 8 as well. One final thing on that slide. Every one of us know, certainly, that it can be a difficult and somewhat time-consuming thing to mature and develop to the point that we want to do always what God wants us to do. Because we have an enemy, and there are temptations and tendencies about us that try to lead us the wrong way. Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. You and I must bring every thought into captivity, every thought, so that we could be the proper and directed servants to God. That sometimes can be challenging indeed. It is with those things in mind. Let's now come to that text in 2 Corinthians 8. If you'd be turning back to that with me, We'll be investing the next few moments in that particular chapter asking for some practical help in how we want to walk to. I have tried to assemble the lesson with bullet points at this point so that you and I hopefully can remember and apply to ourselves some of these features and aspects that we're about to see. Let's begin with number one. How do I learn as a Christian to want to do what God wants me to do. Again, not just to have some desire to do it, but to always want to do it. Point number one, you and I must, if we're going to be as dutiful in this regard as we should, we must appreciate our own indebtedness. Let me develop that point like this, if I may. You and I must keep thoroughly in the forefront of our thinking the fact that without our complete service to God without an understanding of what He's done for us, we're likely going to fail. It all begins as you and I might note this text in Luke chapter 7. So hold your finger in 2 Corinthians 8 and look at how this is described in Luke 7. Beginning in verse 36, the following description is found. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. So on this occasion, a Pharisee invited Jesus to come and share a meal with him. Jesus went. Verse 37, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. 
and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, wouldn't have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence, the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore which of them will love him most. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast judged rightly. And he tur- then he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Then he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? The point is easy to see. Jesus speaking to this Pharisee said, I came into your house. You didn't give me any means to wash my feet. You didn't anoint me. You in fact showed me no speciality of all. And yet this woman, who everyone declares to be a sinner, she has anointed my feet, she has washed them, she has used the means she had, and Jesus forgave her sins. And then he asked Simon, between one forgiven 500 and one forgiven 50, who will love the Lord the most? The one who was forgiven the most. I'd submit to you and I, if we're going to want to serve the Lord, we must never forget what He did for us. You and I should have been on that cross. You and I should have been headed to hell. You and I should have been the one unforgiven. You and I were the ones that were His enemy because we had in fact violated the law of God by being sinners. And He took our place. He took my place and yours. And in so doing, I owe Him the desire to do what He wants me to do. Let's add to that the following. In Luke 19.10, Jesus there said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now in that conversation with Zacchaeus, of course, that great point was made and all of us must remember that without Him we're lost. Therefore, we should want to serve Him and want to do what He wants us to do. For that reason, one last verse. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. That's the very point Paul makes here. Did you note the language? It surely must be one of the grandest verses in all of 2 Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. He was the one that was rich in heaven. You and I were the ones poor in sin. 
And yet he became poor, giving up heaven to live on earth that you and I might be rich and live in heaven. Oh, what he has done for us. Thing number one then, if you and I would learn to want to do what he wants us to do, never forget how much we owe him. We're indebted to him. Lesson number two. Could I add this one to it? One of the points that was made in our passage, and we'll develop that shortly, centers around digesting the Word of God. Perhaps it goes like this. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And with that thought in mind, it now echoes like this. We are admonished to write that law of God on our heart. Psalm 119, verse number 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Hiding the word of God in our heart, the closer we are to the word, the more we'll want to do what it says. Because that's what God wants us to do. And that want to, that desire, is echoed in the quotation of those ideas in Hebrews 8, verses 8 and following, where there we're admonished, in fact commanded, to write on our heart the very things which are the law of God. We might pause at this moment and ask all of ourselves, are you and I writing the law of God in our life, on our heart? You see, there's biblical consideration for the strength of that idea. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 and following, God there told the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, take this little book and eat it up. Now, you and I may find that strange. God telling Ezekiel to take an old scroll and literally eat it, to digest it. The sense and the idea behind that was, Ezekiel, you thoroughly take what's taught in that, apply it to your life and heart, and then you use it to not only guide yourself, but teach others. Wasn't John told the same thing in Revelation 10? There in the midst of those remarkable revelations in the apocalypse, John again was told, John, take this little book and eat it up. Now again, we understand that that was an expression of consideration relative to imbibing, to digesting the Word of God. May you and I ever be faithful to do it. The more we know of it and appreciate it, the more we'll want to do what it says. As you, as you and I close that slide, notice how it appears here in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, and all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. And in the midst of that, mention was made of the abundance of knowledge so one has to digest that Word of God to be knowledgeable of it. Lesson number three. In addition to these two things that can help us want to do what God wants us to do, there is something to be said for steadfastness as it appeared in what Brother Andrew read a moment ago. Let's develop that point in the following way. Verse number 10 makes this observation. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. The facts behind the case are these. 
Paul was making a, a collection for those needy saints in the Jerusalem area. Those who were suffering under some dire circumstances, and Paul was making a collection of these congregations over in the Grecian area so that he could take that Gentile contribution back to those churches and help those people. The fact is, in verse 10, Paul told the Corinthians, you folks promised a year ago that you would contribute to this, but you haven't done it yet. Do you get the sense? They had made the intent, they had promised that they would, but they hadn't followed through with it. Lesson number three, be steadfast. Be committed always to those things which are of that truth. And as you and I develop the point, we mustn't lose heart. Notice, it had been a year since the Corinthians had promised this, and now Paul brings it to their attention. Follow through, continue in steadfastness with what you promised. You and I as Christians need to keep that thought in mind as well. We've made a promise to Jesus. On the day you were baptized, you made the statement, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. And you gave a statement of profession that day that you'd always be faithful to Him. We all did. How am I doing at that? How am I doing at that? How are you doing at that? Have you allowed steadfastness to wane? Have you found circumstances in which you've allowed other things to be such that you've used them as excuses not to do the will of God? Maybe all of us can think of incidents and moments in life. May I encourage all of us, be steadfast. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now really that thought ties pretty closely to number four. Number four, follow through. We just noted that church in Corinth. They had promised that they'd give, but they hadn't done it yet. Paul now shakes them up a bit and says, follow through with what you intended. Follow through with what you promised. Not only will that be a blessing to you, but it'll be a blessing, of course, to those others who receive that gift. Follow through. How often does the Bible ask us to note these points? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. James 1.22 Isn't it true that we don't find that heaven awaits those who had intent? Heaven awaits those who followed through. Those who carried out those works of the Lord. I'm reminded, aren't you, of that text in James 2 verses 17 and 18. There James said, Faith without works is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. The works that you and I do are those things that are open testimony. And may I suggest, the more that we do them, the more we'll want to do them. That's quite often the way that works, isn't it? As you and I look at this follow-through, look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 8, the very text that was read a moment ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. 
Isn't it true that you maybe have experienced in life occasions where maybe from your parents or some other close friend, you watched them do things. You learned from them how to do it. At this point, having now done that so many times yourself, it's ingrained that way and that's always the way you do it. And you want to do it that way. You see, there's something to be said about the Bible in that way. The more we attach ourselves to it and follow through, the more we'll want to do it. And that will, in fact, develop in us a wanting to want to. One final thing. In Psalm 1 verse 1, the repetitiveness and the repetitive action attached to our service to the Master. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's a lovely passage, isn't it? That's the first four verses of Psalm 1. But let's look at number 5. Paul seemingly highlights something else that could also be a benefit to us. I've entitled it, Giving Yourself to Love. In a moment, we're going to look specifically at that verse in which Paul's injunction occurs. But wouldn't it be fair to say that love is a key idea and a key element all throughout the New Testament? In fact, it is the key behind the transformation I would call to your attention 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. Paul there made this statement, Follow all things given to charity. Given to charity. Now that's, of course, the King James word for love. And so isn't it true that Paul is admonishing them as well as us to be given to that? And of course, there are a number of specifics, and this is just a small sampling of what could have been listed. But that would include love for God. That would include love for Christ. That would include love of the Scriptures. That would include love of the church. Again, just four quick observations. You'll notice the way Paul states it here is this. Look with me in verse 7 again, please. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. That verse and the one that follows it. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Proving the sincerity of your love. I suppose some might say, you have no right to judge anything about the sincerity of my love. And yet Paul admonished the Corinthians, don't you know that as you carry out this activity, you are demonstrating the sincerity of your love. Of course, you and I would appreciate that commitment as well. That fifth idea, that fifth point then might be summarized by May we give ourselves to that. Jesus did, didn't He? Isn't it so that God is love? 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. He is love. 
That attribute of love leads us to embody that in our homes. We embody it in our church. We embody it, let's say, in the other attributes and considerations of our life. For we're told to even love our enemies, aren't we? Sometimes, as challenging as that may seem, nonetheless, love is a vital part even in serving the Lord that way. The more we do that, the more we will want to do it. It'll make us happier. Don't you realize that you're miserable when in fact we fail to carry these things out and think we have a better way to do it? God's way is always best. Number six, prayer. Aren't you and I taught in the Bible, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. James 1 verses 5 through 7. And so, if I have reached the point in life when perhaps I'm going through motions, and it's not that I'm wanting to do what God wants me to do, but I'm trying to scrape along, I need to pray about that. To beseech God's assistance and His direction and His help that I might want to do what He wants me to do. And in terms of that kind of servitude, what a stronger person I'll be. And that strength perhaps is seen in verses like number 12. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Didn't Jesus on one occasion say in Luke 18, 1, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now that word faint highlights to come up short, to crumble beneath the burden and the load. And therefore, if you and I want to do what He wants us to do, and we're somewhat lacking in that, we could in earnest just pray for God's help in light of that point. And oh, how great God's answer to prayer can be. Aren't we taught in James 5.16 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? That kind of consideration of prayer brings me to the last two points. This number six allows me to mention number seven. Now, in our study of 2 Corinthians 8, you'll notice that Paul makes one other application of this. In his insistence, in his encouraging of the church in Corinth that they would give, you'll notice that he does a rather ingenious thing. Could I call to your attention chapter 9, verse 2? I know that's in the next chapter. But notice what he says there. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia and Achaia. I'm sorry, to them of Macedonia that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Paul was able to mention that this congregation in Corinth did have some zeal. But they just hadn't followed through. But Paul had used that idea. Don't you know, Corinthians, I used you as an example to encourage the people in Macedonia. I mentioned you and your zeal and your commitment. Could it be here that Paul, by that mention, enlisted the example of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians? Sometimes that can be very helpful to us. When you and I appreciate... 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I speak not by commandment, 
but by occasion of the forwardness of others. The forwardness of others. As you and I then learn to want to do what He wants us to do, may we not use the examples of those that are weaker. Find the strongest Christian that you know. Watch that person. Seek to imitate them. Don't let yourself slide down to match the weaker ones. Hopefully you will encourage them to be stronger, but find those individuals who are fortified and strong and committed and dedicated. Those are the ones that you and I can learn so much from. They've weathered the storms of difficulty and trial and temptation, and they've emerged victorious and faithful. And even under the oppression of the current day, they continue to be faithful. No wonder then as you think about enlisting the help of others. I mentioned that at the top. Maybe a growth partner. Now maybe that doesn't always have to be spoken. But again, watch those that are faithful and those that are strong and those you want to be like for that person wants to do what God wants them to do. Learn from them. How do they do it? Well, as you and I learn from their example of faithfulness and their ongoing attributed life, that can be meaningful to us because is it the church, the family of God? And as such, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We edify and encourage one another. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We re- weep with those that weep, Romans twelve fifteen. Maybe in light of that, we can close that slide and close our lesson like this. We've been attempting tonight to study, how do I learn to want to do what Jesus wants me to do? We know that the devil is never going to make that trivially easy. He's going to ensure that there's enough other forces, sometimes very strong, that we may do what Jesus says, but really we just as soon be doing something else. We've got to always overcome that line of thinking. We need to learn to want to do what Jesus wants us to do. And so let's close our lesson like this. Jesus carried this out. He always strove to not only do the will of God, but delight in it. And you and I are given in this text before us an example. Paul gave the Corinthians the ideas behind this. And one by one, we've looked at all of those applications at the bottom of that slide. I hope that this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 has been helpful to us, urging us onward and forward. In Philippians 3, Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Are you and I pressing onward, forward, and upward? If you are, then you know what a joyous and happy life that is. But if you're not... Maybe you aren't really wanting to do so much what God wants you to do. It's time to make some changes. That's called repentance. You need to come back to a heartfelt belief in the truth of the Word of God. Ingest that Word and let it emanate in your life. That would begin, if you've never become a Christian, by becoming one. Believe with all your heart in the Christ as a Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could assist you tonight, what a joy it would be.
If you have become a Christian, though, you have known what it was like to want to do what God wants you to do. But that's a distant memory at best. Now, more or less, Christianity has become a ritual. Just an old, lifeless habit. Well, may I say, if that's true, then your life isn't the example it could be. And your commitment to the Lord isn't as it ought to be either. You need to come back to your first love in which your zeal experiences and emanates in such a way that you are literally on fire, burning up with good works. And today, if we could help by praying for your rededication, we'd love to do that. Titus 2, verses 13 and 14, insist upon it. And if we could help you in that way tonight, we'd love to do that too. Encourage you in any way we can. Just let us know how we can help. Do it at once, would you? If that's the need of your life, while together we stand and while we sing.